Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog owners, professionals, and sports enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior issues, sports, and everything in between. We're three friends and colleagues who share a passion for dogs, and although we have many similarities, we also have many differences in our training styles and the methods we practice. We're here to have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Hey everyone, welcome to the Canine Classroom. I'm Anthony DeMarinis. I'm here today with my friend Vinny Viola, and we have the honor and pleasure of having Dr. Chris Pockel here with us. How are you? I am doing fantastic, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. Happy to have you here, and I think we'll have a really interesting and cool chat tonight, so I think it'll be interesting. Um, So let let me first introduce you. Pull up your bio right here. So Dr. Chris Pockel is a board certified veterinary behaviorist and is the owner and lead clinician at Animal Behavior Clinic of Portland, Oregon. Dr. Pockel lectures extensively uh, both domestically and internationally teaching courses at multiple veterinary schools in the United States and has authored numerous articles and book chapters for veterinarians and pet owners. He is a sought-after expert witness for legal cases and serves on the editorial advisory board for DVM 360. And he is also the vice president of veterinary behavior for instinct behavior and training, as well as a co-owner of Instinct Portland, which opened in the fall of 2020. Do you guys have a, uh, a facility uh, opening soon? We do. We okay. do. We've got a 10,000 10, square foot facility that we are in the midst of construction phase on right now, doing a revamp nice. on the property that will actually allow both Instinct Portland and Animal Behavior Clinic to finally be under the same roof with a nice. collaborative relationship really flowing back and forth for all of our clients and the animals that we work with. Nice. Yeah, doctor. that's like Dr. Levine's uh, office over in, in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. We've got uh, enough space to, I think uh, the kennel situation is about 42 dogs or so at max capacity. Uh, and it's myself and three other doctors through ABC. So we're, we're, we're really looking forward to get some, some really good therapeutic work going. Nice, nice. That's great. Well, why don't you tell our listeners, especially for those who, who may not know what a veterinary behaviorist is, what you do. Maybe you could explain a little bit to everyone first before we kind of jump in here. Sure. So a veterinary behaviorist is probably the easiest way to understand it is that we are first and foremost veterinarians, right? So we go through that whole process, undergraduate, and then the professional degree. So we graduate as veterinarians, and then there's some requirement, and I say some requirement because it depends on the track that you follow, but you spend some time in general practice, uh, typically a couple of years, uh, and then go back into residency training. And so just like any other specialist in the veterinary field, whether we're talking surgeons or cardiologists or anesthesiologists, behavior has very much the same sort of a 
sort of a, a residency program typically is at least three years of supervised mentorship working with someone else who is already board certified in behavior. Uh, you're looking at couple hundred, usually four to 500 mentored cases, couple thousand hours of mentored logs. You're also responsible for completing primary research as well as working through some case reports or some additional written projects throughout that time. And then you sit a two day exam at the end and you get to call yourself a veterinary behaviorist at the end of all of that. Uh, Sounds that, pretty uh, easy. I don't know. It's a cake. You know, you, you spend a weekend, you kind of you know, decide what you want to do. You're like, God, that'll be amazing. Yeah, Not much planning uh, goes on ahead of time, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I Yeah, so so it's it's quite the ordeal. Um, I would say it's probably one of the bigger undertakings I've ever taken on in my life. And yeah, and so once you get through the end of that, you know, you're 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 functioning both as a veterinarian and as a behaviorist. And I think I love putting that and in there truthfully, because if I were just stepping in and I say just not to minimize any role within these conversations, but if I were quote unquote just working as a behaviorist without keeping that mental model front and center, I wouldn't be doing my training up sort of a full justice, right? And yet if I was only looking at this as a veterinarian with just a casual nod to training and behavior and the way animals learn, well, that wouldn't be really looking at the full picture either. So I often see myself as a bit of a translator between those disciplines, knowing that a lot of trainers and behavior consultants don't have an extensive knowledge or comprehensive understanding of the medical model of how doctors' brains work and vice versa. So having that fluency to be able to kind of translate back and forth and act as not only a, a go-between, but also someone who can look at all of those pieces for an individual animal and say, hey, what do we need? Do we need to go down that medical diagnostic pathway? Do we need to look at physiologic or physical therapies? Do we need to look at medication support? Do we really need to dial in our training and our behavior mod plan? Like, what do we need? Looking at all of those tools in the toolbox comprehensively, that's where I think the veterinary behaviorist role really has the potential to shine. And so would you kind of say that if we wanted to make more of a human comparison to simplify it, would you say it's kind of like the psychiatrist versus psychologist role in a way uh, for your job? To some degree, yes, in that we have the access to prescribing the way that a psychiatrist would. Uh, the only thing that I that I kind of put uh, push back on or kind of get a little bit bristly about is that I do think there's commonly a misconception that veterinary behaviorists are only prescribers or, you know, if you're if you want to consider medication, then you go see the vet behaviorist. Otherwise, you go talk to other people. And I know that that can be the case and I certainly have the ability to do med consults for some of my patients but at least in the way that I practice I can't do a med consult unless I've got a thorough understanding of that animal and their relationships and the environment they live in and how they've responded to training interventions you know regardless of methodology I'm looking at how that animal learns what are we trying to teach them where are they struggling and where am I trying to help them out with medication if that's even indicated? And so the psychiatrist piece for me, like, yes, and also psychologist and social worker and, and, and to be able to get all of those roles represented. So I have a two part question then. So when is it maybe the right time for a dog owner to seek your help? And 
maybe also when is it the right time for a professional to like professional dog trainer, behavior consultant to refer their case over to you or to team up and collaborate with someone like you? Because I think, I think that I find that to be a common question that's asked a lot. I, I will say like I have clients who have maybe hired two, three or four trainers before I go to their home and, and they hire me. And it's not even necessarily that the training plan was wrong. It, it can sometimes be that, hey, actually maybe this dog needs a little bit of internal help. And then everything that your other trainer actually was teaching you might actually be more beneficial because we can potentially have that dog in more of a thinking state as opposed to this maybe overreactive type of state. So I'd be curious, um, I'd be curious to know like when you feel maybe it's the right time for dog owner to seek your help and, and when you feel maybe a trainer should be um, seeking help for their client. Yeah, to some degree, I think the answer is the same. Um, in that, you know, I'm looking at that, it, it, you know, if you're either the owner or the the trainer, or the behavior consultant, whoever is sort of professionally involved with that case, and if you either don't know what's going on, and you're like, you know what, not even necessarily above my pay grade, just different from my pay grade, I don't know what to do with the information in front of me, and I want to get someone who's going to be able to take a look at this animal through a different lens, again, not better or worse, just different. So that would be one way to get that additional opinion. The other case is sometimes I think when you actually feel like you've got a pretty good understanding of what's going on and you feel like, yes, this is an animal that quote unquote should be responding to these interventions and they're not. They're just not getting it. They can't focus They're, you know, there's something about the way in which the animal is learning that again, perhaps approaching it from a different angle is going to be helpful. I think the tricky bit though, you know, is that I can look at that and say, okay, when you don't know what's going on or the animal's not responding appropriately, great time to bring in a, a vet behaviorist or a, a VB, sometimes we'll initially just for, uh, abbreviate just for, for short, shortness sake. So we bring in a VB and then you say, cool, I called the VB and they're booked out three months or four months or something along those lines. It's a really common scenario. So I, I also have to just acknowledge that even when I'm saying that may be the time where you want to bring someone like myself in, we're not all that available in those moments. And so sometimes we have to think about some triage options to bridge that gap between that place of need and the availability of the specialist as well. Well, and I guess it kind of makes me just think for a second, um, as you're saying that, because that could potentially mean maybe we need help from the general veterinarian to start off, just as an example. So maybe just for the sake of an example, maybe a dog has extreme reactive type of behavior on, on a walk towards other dogs or people, and maybe it's affecting the dog and the owner's daily living the dog needs exercise but the environment that they're in it may it may be limited to where they can go or what they can actually do so a walk in the neighborhood might be one form that they can't really get around for one reason or another so let's say that maybe we're getting help from the regular veterinarian where do you find maybe clients are apprehensive to 
seek their help because maybe they want to wait or maybe they're just apprehensive because they're maybe not sure if medication potentially is even the right option. Yeah, there's a lot of places where we have to navigate uh, pushback or hesitation, whatever label we put on it. Um, and I think in some cases that comes from the pet owner themselves. Maybe they're concerned about medication side effects. Sometimes there's a perceived vulnerability or a blame shame game that's going on for them about, oh my gosh, if I have to seek veterinary help, what does that say about me as a pet owner? Uh, sometimes that's an obstacle. In other cases, they're worried about medication or medical interventions changing that animal's personality. I mean, all of these things are valid concerns. And so I think it's it can be helpful to even ask the client, you know, while, you know, depending on which role you're you're filling, if we get any of that hesitation, asking them, hey, when I mentioned the opportunity to, to consult with a veterinary behaviorist to or to consult with your primary veterinarian, if that doesn't feel comfortable, tell me more about that. Like what, what's going on for you? What comes up when we think about that option? It may give us the opportunity to navigate some of that, some of that pushback that's coming there, which you know, we, we can certainly do. The other piece though, I think that is important is that there are a lot of veterinarians out there who are really, really, really good at their jobs, who either through lack of education or lack of interest, and I'm not judging anyone when I say that, they're just not interested in behavior. Mm -hmm. And so the veterinarian maybe asked questions or, you know, the, the client comes to them with some concerns and the vet kind of blows it off because it's just not their wheelhouse. Yeah, and I actually love working with those veterinarians, especially if they're at least willing to schedule some time on the phone. I love doing vet to vet consults where we can get some of that initial information either from the trainer or the consultant or the owner or ideally both. And I can spend up to 30 minutes talking with that veterinarian on the phone, even if they don't have a really strong foundation knowledge in behavior and basically say, here's what we know, here's what we're aiming for, here's what we can do, here's how that works, and here's how we can bring that within your wheelhouse, not only to help this particular animal, but also then to give you a slightly broader toolbox that you can then use and apply to other cases. The thing I love about those particular consults, at least at the animal behavior clinic, is we're usually able to book those sort of triage vet to vet consults, usually within one to two weeks time, even when we're booked out three to four months for new patients that we're bringing in as primary care providers. So we really try to make ourselves available exactly for that triage opportunity, especially for those veterinarians who are open but just don't know how to proceed on their own, we can help. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you say it because I know, just because I work with a lot of, uh, I, I get a lot of referrals from veterinarians and it's interesting to me how there is a large number who it isn't their knowledge base, but I, I would say it's interesting because I can't tell you how many times they'll call me and say, hey, what do you think? What do you recommend? And I'm like, uh, that's not what I do. I'm, you know, and, and, but it's funny that they'll actually ask. And I mean, in a way, I, even though it's a little bit like, it makes me laugh a little, it, it really, in a way, I kind of appreciate the fact that they're at least being honest that it's not something they know. Because yeah. I, I think that sometimes we all, you know, I think things that we don't know, sometimes all of us sometimes feel uncomfortable admitting that. 
Yeah. So I, I, I do think that's, that is something I have found very interesting because of the number of veterinarians who have actually called me and said, Hey, so, you know, happy to help, but <laughs> not sure what to do here. <laughs> yeah. And I think those are some of the greatest ones for getting them routed to a vet to vet consult, and whether that's through, you know, through the animal behavior clinic or any of the most veterinary behaviorists will offer some version of that consult. So it doesn't yeah. have to be us, you know, find whoever you like working with who, who sort of works with your, your practice style. But the thing I love about this, this kind of comes back to that translator role is that if you're talking about what you know about you know the assessment process and you're giving that putting that into the hands of the veterinarian your lens is different and unless you or you know whoever is listening to this call as a trainer or behavior consultant unless you've got extensive knowledge about how doctors think through cases there's a lot of potential for lost in translation communications and that's i don't mean to say that negatively towards either end of the conversation but you have to be fluent with both sides of that conversation to actually act as a translator and i see that happening over and over again where either someone offers support from a medication recommendation or maybe even mentions something medically and we start running down this pathway and you know gosh no we're way off track and we've completely biased the entire intervention plan in kind of an inappropriate way. And we've got a veterinarian who didn't know what they don't know and didn't know that they were going down the wrong pathway. So again, I'm super grateful for anyone who reaches out with that level of humility or curiosity and wants to know more. And it's a great opportunity to say, hey, love the curiosity. If I had the name of someone who could really help and speak your language and help you to understand the medical side of what we're doing behaviorally, are you open to that conversation? Because that's really where their, where their skill set and their knowledge base is going to grow. I think it's, uh, you just brought up a good point uh, as far as getting lost in translation. And this kind of was going to lead me to a question I wanted to ask, uh, which was, uh, where do you find or when do you find trainers and behavior consultants are apprehensive maybe to send a client to whether it's the regular veterinarian or a vet behaviorist? Because I have found, and I don't know if this is the reason why for trainers, but I've found that sometimes there is also this miscommunication or something's getting lost when a client might go to the vet behaviorist and the vet behaviorist might make their diagnosis. And then I walk into the home and we start seeing what's going on in the house, which is going to be different if they're going to maybe the vet behaviorist office. So I'd be curious if, if that, if you think that could be a reason that maybe trainers and, and behavior consultants sometimes are apprehensive or I mean I'll even see trainers who I know like they want to strive for trying to even have the client's dog get off of meds at a certain point um you know I I don't know I'm just kind of curious if you notice if you notice this or if it's something that you've observed or what your thoughts are on that yeah I think it's it's a really great it's a great question, you know, and, and I love being able to get into some of these conversations that kind of get into some sticky stuff. Yeah, you know, we're we're actually we're talking about you know individuals and reputations and relationships and the comfort that goes back and forth within that referral process. 
And I think there's a lot of lot of potential layers to that. Um, I, I know in some cases, just based on my own learning history and my own experience in talking with, with trainers and consultants and veterinarians and veterinary behaviorists all across the country, I know that sometimes there's a little bit of territoriality that creeps in where there may be a reputation that, oh, I made the referral and then I lose the client and I'm no longer involved in the process. So there's a reluctance, especially if you feel like you're making progress and want to collaborate, there may be some reluctance to let go of that case by, by, by referring on, even if it's in the client's best interest. I also know that, that you know, something that I hear from a lot of trainers and consultants is they perceive that they've been talked down to uh by the either the veterinarian or the veterinary behaviorist you know that's cute you go back to doing your training thing i'll take it from here which i think is completely and totally inappropriate um you know we've had enough of these conversations um you know at conferences and things to know that i i don't think about this as sort of a, a pyramid or a hierarchy with the vet behaviorist necessarily at the top i think about it more as lanes in the highway and as long as i'm doing what what is within my lane really really well then I can pass things off to others who are better suited, better skilled to do whether it's be, you know, BMOD implementation or whether it's the time and the availability to actually go to the home and do that, that coaching work that I just can't do at this point within my career, my availability. So, so again, I, I recognize that in the process of referral, there are some of those really valid limitations that may start to creep in. Um, I also know that, you know, in a, in a, a college like the, the ACBB, you know, there's more of us, meaning we're growing, but there's also, you know, the sort of the mindset that we are a small enough organization that there's a lot of individual different personality dynamics. And so depending on where you're working as a trainer or a consultant, you may not have a lot of opportunities to choose from. And for whatever reason, if you're not clicking with the vet behaviorist in your area, you may not feel like you've got a lot of other options. And so you kind of get into this push pull that creates some reluctance to refer. Uh, and and I, I see that playing out with with some of those variables, as well as a bunch of other ones that we, we probably don't have all the time to get into, but it's it's tricky. And so I think, you know, I guess bottom line, regardless of why the, the issue is there, I'm a fan of communication, meaning if, if I'm reluctant, if I find myself reluctant to refer to a trainer in my community, and yet I think they might be a really good resource for my client or for whatever the situation is that's on me to pick up the phone or send the email or start that conversation and just say, hey, here's what I'm feeling. You know, here, am I on the right track? Is there a way that we can navigate some of this communication? What would it look like if I referred? How can we collaborate rather than making just a sort of a handoff referral if that's appropriate? But, but again, starting the conversation and seeing where that takes us. If we haven't done that yet, I think is a great place to start. I want to I want to confess something. Um, you're, you're, what you just said reminded me of it. Early on, one of the scariest moments of my career was when I referred a client to a behaviorist, and they agreed, and they went, and they 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 loved the the whole thing. And then the behaviorist was like, "And the training you're doing is is going great. You should go back to to who you're working with." And I was like. Oh no, they're coming back. So, you know, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll admit it, you know, like early on, <laughs> like, no, wait, I was, you know, not that I wanted to get rid of anyone, but you know, I was knowing your limitations is, is huge, right? Like always, um, you don't want to 
take on a case if you can't help. And you don't want to be giving recommendations about meds if you're a trainer. So, you know, it just made me think of that because when you said they're like stealing your uh, your clients, that I was like, <laughs> oh no, you're tossing them back. But it made me think of because there is there is pushback from clients, and I'll admit. I, I like to meet my clients where they're at. And I know that if I go in for a session, these people don't even know me. And within 10 minutes, even if I believe in my heart, like this dog needs to be on something, right? If I say that session one, they might instantly close up and then who knows where they end up next. Maybe they don't go anywhere else. And then now I, I have to think about that dog at two o'clock in the morning when I toss and turn and I think about my clients, right? <laughs> Sometimes it leaves us trainers, um, and maybe this is kind of a segue into some of the other conversations we're going to have. Sometimes it leaves us trainers dealing with a dog that maybe needs to be medicated, um, but we need to build some rapport with this client. We might need to get some headway on some of their goals um, so that then maybe we could be like, look, we tried, you know, we tried X, Y, Z. There's this, you know, maybe it's time for um for something else not that and i want to also with the caveat of i am a proponent that sometimes it is step one you know is the best you know it is the best thing to start with um but you know i can't make people do that all the time <laughs> you know well, so, i have a question uh, for yeah. you i have a question for you Vinny. so yeah. um because i don't disagree with you i think that especially when you can feel like where it's going in the session with a client, you know what you can and can't say at that point, you know, but like, I, I was wondering, do you ever also just in your consult discuss what all the options are? Like, it's not like, not, I don't mean like, oh, you, I recommend you go see Dr. Pockle for vet behaviors consult. I mean, more like these are the options that we have available to us yeah again like you said i kind of feel, feel i kind of feel out the client and you know if they they might joke around and be like oh man i think this dog needs xanax i might you know what i mean it gives yeah, you that a, opening a, of it like, opens the door though you know what maybe it does you know like, yeah and, and then and then you can get that it really depends on the client if i can tell you know some people are they've already been waiting to see me and they've already maybe been to a few other trainers and they're maybe the the things they're dealing with are disrupting their life usually that's why they're coming to us and then if i'm like oh well like get on this wait list it's like dude you know i remember back during covid it was like like forget about it i'm sure you know yeah like it was I was like, I could probably become a behaviorist before one of you guys has have an opening. <laughs> like, you know, you so if I just go in and I'm like, oh, yeah. So like, by the way, you also I'm going to tell you to do nothing like some management stuff and then, you know, do this. They're, they're going to get ticked off. Right. Um, and then who knows what they're doing. Right. Because, you know, not saying that my clients are doing crazy things to their dogs behind the doors, but I, I don't know. Like I'm dealing with someone that's they're they're stressed. And their dog is stressed. And so, yeah, I, I don't know what you guys feel about that. But then that's where, and I was actually happy to give a shout out. I was listening to you on um, Enrichment for the Real World. And, you know, you mentioned that you had switched 
to not so much management first for almost a similar type of reason. Like, and it's funny you brought up the window film because that was the one for so long. People, people hate the window film, man. I don't know what it is. They hate it. They hate the window film. And sometimes when they agree with it too much, I go back to the house and it looks like they're preparing for like a zombie apocalypse. Like I had this one street that I trained like three dogs on. You're driving down the street and you're like, what's going on over here? They're just like white out on all the windows. <laughs> Hey, you but know? If they put that stuff on pretty good and they get rid of the air bubbles. It looks like you're shaved. <laughs> Am I wrong? It's cozy on the inside. It's like a spy, you know, you don't see anything going on. But like, I, these are kind of the thoughts as you guys are talking that I'm thinking about, like bringing this back down to like, you know, the day to day stuff that, that I'm seeing and the pushback that is very real. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in there, Vinny. I think the, you know, the, 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 the idea of sort of meeting the client where they are could not agree more. I mean, regardless of where we want them to be, that's where they are right now. And if we go in and try to create or coerce something that is different from that, dang, we just made our job so much harder than it needed to be. And I don't have to agree with where they are. I just have to acknowledge it and say, cool, that's where you're starting from. Awesome. I'd love to help you take a couple of steps in this direction. Does that meet up with your expectations? Awesome. Let's go. Right. So I think in some cases, if, if I'm going in, you know, I have the same sort of idea from going into a consult. I don't necessarily know who the client is. I don't know whether they're going to be more of a, you know, I sort of jokingly say, are they more of the East Coast or the West Coast or the Midwest vibe? Like what what verbiage do I need? How assertive do I need to be? How efficient? How fast do I need to talk? What's our communication vibe? So I'm going to spend a little bit of time, you know, figuring that out as we as we go through the beginning portion. But I'm, I'm also looking at it from a, you know, what are my options? And, you know, I, I sometimes will find, especially if I have either a little hint that this is an animal that may benefit from medication at some point in the process, or maybe the question is more about the client communication. And I'm worried that this uh, there's some red flags here that this may go off the rails at some point in time. I try to ask some questions really early on just to, as I'm getting my history, hey, at some point, if our communication, I'm sure it won't, but if our communication goes off the rails, how do you like to handle that? Do you want me to just call it out and kind of be blunt and just say what I say? Or do you want me to send you an email? What's your preference? So I'm kind of, you know, getting some of that information on the front side before it becomes an emotionally charged conversation later on when things are actually off the rails. Similarly, I'll do something like that along with medication and say, hey, you know, again, I just meeting your dog. I'm not making any decisions or recommendations yet. I got a lot of tools in my toolbox. If at some point it looks appropriate for me to mention to mention medication as a possible intervention, how do you feel about that? Is that something you want to explore? Is that something that you're you're really opposed to? Doesn't really matter to me where we are. I just want to kind of know where what the lay of the land is as we get started. So again, before I'm going down that pathway of I think I want to recommend, but I think I can see that from here, I may ask some of those questions, just sort of weaving them throughout the rest of my intake. So I'm getting the data that allows me to leverage that recommendation in a in a way that hopefully works for that client. And without it coming at the end where I'm basically throwing up my hand saying, gosh, I don't think I can help you. I think meds are our only option. And the client feels blindsided by that because here we are 60 minutes into a consult. They're just starting to think, oh, we're, we're just getting warmed up. Look at all the things we're going to do. And you pull the rug out from underneath them. That's not good for anybody, including, you know, your professional reputation in the community. <laughs> Right. All of that stuff really does start to matter. So those are some of the strategies that I tend to use in some of the situations you described. 
Yeah, I think those clear expectations from the beginning are huge, is really laying that out. So, it, you know, for me too, uh, similar to you, um, if you don't set those expectations up early, and then now you have to explain yourself later on, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good at, at all. And when it's, when it's laid out there, then again, you're building that relationship. So I think what I wanted to um, kind of steer towards then is, is the training, is, is more of the training. So say, say we're training a dog, at what point might we, would a trainer start looking at signs that maybe it's time to, to see, seek professional help? Yeah, and are you thinking with that professional help, thinking specifically, again, going down the medication pathway or thinking that we might need an additional intervention or more broadly? Yeah, like, and this is going to, you know, I want to tie this into Lima as well. Uh, like, where, maybe maybe that's my question, is where on, where on the Lima, um, what do we call this, like a diagram? I know it's like a highway with the roads, like, where would medication fall on that if it were to? Would it be like on the health in the very beginning at times? Or, and then does it depend on the dog? Um, and then maybe does it depend on where, what the behavior is that we're, we're working with? It's a great question. Uh, and I think it, it depends a little bit uh, kind of on where the, where, where the medication piece or where some of those physical or, or emotional health details are, are sort of becoming evident. Um, you know, I think when I when I think about that humane hierarchy diagram and kind of looking at that highway, like like you were mentioning, that first stop really is about maintaining or, or ensuring that the animal is, for lack of a better term, is healthy. Right. And that's a really broad term. Right. And that may include nutritional health. It may include you know orthopedic or musculoskeletal issues. It may include itchiness that's creating irritability. Like there's all of those things that go into that first stop. And I think one of the things that that I, I've learned over the years is that a lot of the obstacles that we encounter from an emotional regulation standpoint or some of the, the big feelings that dogs have about situations, they're not always evident. And even some of the dogs that may have big feelings about things, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be also incredibly flexible once we put really good training in front of them. And so I, I tend to just kind of acknowledge some of those initial details and say, okay, let's, let's hit the big stuff in terms of overall health. And then that moves us on to that next stop within the hierarchy, which is, you know, really thinking more about environmental uh, arrangement or looking at antecedents and just essentially what does it take to set that animal up to be successful, keep them out of situations that are going to be problematic, put them in situations where they can be successful. And obviously I'm being super basic about sort of that approach, we can dive into details. And, but then moving on to education. And the reason that I, I, I kind of wanted to get there is the moment I start to go down the education pathway, thinking first about positive reinforcement as a way of teaching the animal when you do X, Y, or Z, that leads to something that's enjoyable or pleasurable for you. So, hey, maybe you'd want to do those things a bit more often, right? And we, and we know, generally speaking, that that is a really great place to start. And I'm, and I'm sort of link, looking at it from the standpoint of not just saying, you know, positive reinforcement just for its its own sake, but I'm looking at how the animal learns, you know, when we're starting out with positive reinforcement, knowing that the consequences, the fallout potential for reinforcement based training is less, not saying non existence, but it's less than some of the other methods that we have, 
I'm looking at how does that animal respond? How many behavior consequence repetitions did they need before that light bulb turns on? Once that light bulb has turned on, how consistent is that animal responding? Can they continue to respond even as their heart rate starts to come up a bit? You know, what sort of, of learning can we see happening, which for me starts to feed back even before I'm potentially escalating through some of the additional hierarchy steps, is that if I'm seeing an animal who is struggling to learn, or emotional arousal derails their ability to function or access even some of those fluent skills or tools in the toolbox, I'm more likely personally in the way that I look at that, I'm more likely to circle back around and say, can I give you some extra help before I escalate to some of the additional tools that may have often have greater potential for fallout associated with coercion. Even before we get to something like positive punishment, we know that coercion has fallout in some way, shape or form. We know that when we change behavior, there's a ripple effect. And I actually take that all the way down to positive reinforcement. The moment I'm prioritizing my agenda for the learner above their own agenda, I have to recognize that even at that level, even if I'm doing force free, even if I'm purely positive, even if I'm going down the path of positive reinforcement, me prioritizing my agenda creates at least a mild level of coercion for that learner. I am shifting their behavior. So before I'm gonna go further down that pathway, I'm gonna circle back around and say, hey, is there any indication here that you may benefit from some form of medication and one little caveat and then i'll shut up is the uh the uh the, when i say medication i'm also thinking not only pharmaceuticals but i'm thinking pheromones and food and herbs and basically any of those things that we can use including supplements and over-the-counter products to try to help that animal function more appropriately under those particular conditions. So sometimes when I say medication, it automatically kind of skews in the, the pharmaceutical direction. And for me, it's a much broader umbrella. And that's kind of where I put it still within that first stop on the humane hierarchy, but I don't always really, you know, kind of stay there before I move beyond and potentially circle back around. Does that help? But I just muddy the waters. Even yeah, further. no, no, that helps a lot. I, I like also that you're clarifying, you know, kind of for everyone is sometimes we, especially with the diagram of being a road, we forget that you could like turn the car around and start back at the beginning, you know, it's not just like, yeah. keep on, keep on going. Um, so I guess back to the question of um, how your your strategy might change depending on and I know we're kind of some, we might be guessing at times, but where these, where the emotions are, are in the dog. So whether this is coming from like fear, anxiety, aggression versus maybe a dog that is easily aroused, which to, you know, the layperson might, it just might just look like a dog with tons of energy. Uh, maybe those dogs are seen by you less. I'd actually be interested in, in hearing that too. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there and follow up if I have other questions. <laughs> you know, we, we see a huge variety of dogs. Um, you know, I think we, we see that, you know, that dog that everybody labels as reactive, mm -hmm. right? You know, which doesn't actually tell us a whole heck of a lot about what that animal is feeling or even necessarily what they're doing. Um, and so, you know, we see those dogs within the practice and part of our 
job is really to try to figure out what's going on. I think one of the places that we tend to focus is even indirectly looking at some of the some of the physiologic changes, meaning if I've got an animal who sees a dog down the street and before anything else has changed, the heart rate increases, the respiratory rate increases, the pupil dilates, the you know, there's piloerection or the hair is standing up down the spine, we've got a physiologic response. In that moment, whether that emotion is frustration, fear, excitement or anticipation, I actually I mean, I care, I care a lot, but in that moment, I basically say, you're a dog with big feelings. And the moment we start to get that sort of big feelings vibe, I think about that almost like a teeter totter between limbic system processing and cortical or frontal lobe processing the two plus two equals four. If I sit or look at my person, I get a cookie, you know, that sort of process. And the moment we start to get big feelings that starts to function more like a teeter totter. Right, so that limbic processing that's supposed to be there from situations where there's truly a threat, where there's actual danger, it's supposed to take that frontal lobe processing offline. It's supposed to override our thinking because in a situation of actual danger, you're supposed to short circuit. You're not supposed to take the time that it takes to long circuit and really think and ponder all of your options. So in that short circuit situation where, again, we've got pupil dilation, heart rate, respiratory rate, piloerection, or any of those changes, it's looking at that animal first and say, you're having an emotional response to what's going. That's very different from saying you started running and then your heart rate went up because of physical exertion. And so we can really look at sort of discrete time points and try to get a sense of how much of the movement pattern is emotionally driven or not based on what's going on. And that gives me a much better sense of, again, kind of what's under the hood, so to speak, even from a quote unquote, normal behavioral emotional response pattern. This leads me to, uh, as you're saying that, it just was making me think about working dogs and sport bred dogs. So I'm kind, I wanna, I wanna, go down that for one second um where i guess one thing so first off i guess for a sport bred dog one thing that i find a lot of times is that people will say that they might not want to receive help from someone like yourself especially if we feel medication could be beneficial because they're afraid that it's going to maybe change the dog's behavior or their uh, motivation or, or drive, um, you know, that driviness that they're looking for. So I'd be curious to hear uh, that. And then the other thing that crossed my mind as you were saying, like maybe even normal behavior is then looking at a actual purpose-bred working dog like a guardian breed or protection dog or, or um, maybe a working line herding breed who maybe actually their behavior is normal, just might be uh, in the wrong environment, which could be affecting their behavior or the, the responses that they're, that they're kind of displaying. Um, and so I'd be curious where, what your take is on, on that a little bit. Is medication something that needs to be considered? Is it something that actually it's not going to do 
anything because it's the dog's instinctual response. Like I, I'd be curious to hear what you you say on that. And and this may be a little off topic, but it just made me think of that as you were just saying your your last response to Vinny's question. No, I think there's a lot of lot of layers within that, Anthony. I mean, there if I'm thinking about that dog who comes in, it's a working breed dog. And again, you you labeled out some some really specific patterns, which I love. The thing that I'm looking at is not sort of how how vigorously are they throwing themselves into the work? You know, how intense are they in going through those patterns? But am I seeing any evidence that there's a, for lack of a better term, sort of a frantic level of arousal where it's not just the animal doing their job and doing it well and there's focus and as long as I give them an outlet, everything else is better. Do I have a dog that because of their in, inability or difficulty responding to training or focusing or responding inappropriately to situations around them, they're actually struggling. And so we may be seeing the influence of that arousal, but without appropriate guidance. Uh, and so I, I think in, in those cases where, where we're worried about that, I think the client who is concerned that we're going to kind of squash some of the drive, it's a valid concern, right? A lot of the medications that we may reach for do have sedation as a side effect. And so the one of the things that I try to let those clients know is that if I'm doing my job right or as good as I can, my job is to mitigate the problematic influence of all of that arousal and emotional that's sort of taking that dog offline from a thinking standpoint, but leaving the good stuff behind. So I'm, I shouldn't be causing unless my goal truly is sedation and sometimes that's appropriate. Most of the time it's not. But if sedation is not the goal, I really would want somebody to be able to look at that dog and have no idea that they're on medication. They're just as energetic. They're just as interested in going out for those long runs. They're just as interested in working. And if anything, they have an easier time focusing on the tasks at hand because we've reduced some of the physiologic distractions that may be interfering. But it's a risk, right? When we go down that pathway, even as someone who's been doing this for going, well, 20 years now at this point, uh, almost 20 years specifically in the behavioral field, I still can't tell you what the dog in front of me is going to do if I add in fluoxetine or citalopram or venlafaxine or alprazolam. I don't know. Like I've got some really good data to draw from and I, I'm good at sort of piecing out what I'm seeing to give me indications of what I'm trying to accomplish, but it's a study of one. And so what I try to tell my clients is, you know, you're concerned about sedation, good, so am I. I'm not looking for that, that's not my goal. And if you see anything that you don't like, I should be the first one to know about it because it typically means we're off track. Either our dosing is perhaps a little bit aggressive or assertive and we need to dial it back to allow that animal more time to acclimate, or maybe this isn't the medication that's going to be the right fit for your dog. And we're going to learn something through that side effect profile that tells me about the inner workings of your dog's brain and their body. And I'm going to be able to use that information if you take really good notes for me. I'm going to be able to use that information to refine my next recommendation. And then if that isn't hitting the nail on the head, cool, what did you see? When did it happen? What does that tell me? And I can refine that for option number three. And so I try to set those expectations right from the beginning so that if we are seeing side effects, I've got a client who's still in it, who's still in the process of providing data and refining the plan. Um, 
And I, I would say I've got a lot of performance dogs that I've treated over the years that came to me with some of those concerns. And because of how we navigated the conversations, it made a huge positive impact. And others where we decided medication was just not the way to go. We just didn't have a way to reliably, effectively mitigate that emotional arousal piece in a way that was meaningful. So we, we stopped and we went down other pathways instead, whether that's pursuing additional avenues for BMOD or whether it was really coming back to circling around to some of those early rungs on the hierarchy. Are we actually meeting their needs? This may be a herding breed dog, but they may not be cut out for actual working herding. So how can we provide them an outlet for that behavior in a way that maybe is a better fit for their needs in some way, shape or form? So it's, it, you know, and I love the way that you said that, Vinny, about sort of thinking about this as a hierarchy, but it's not just one direction, right? We don't just go boom, 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 boom. We're still moving through the hierarchy. Anytime I'm ready to get back on that highway and move again, I'm asking the question, am I ready to move on or do I need to reconsider the stuff that came before? And even thinking, oh my gosh, I'm rambling today. I'm even thinking about those dogs that come in to see us as That's an adolescent, <laughs> right? I was like, okay, That's we're just we talking about <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're sitting in. <laughs> uh, amazing. You know, they came to see me at a, as a 15 month old dog, right? Six to 12 months goes by that 25 month old dog, that 27 month dog, it's not the same dog. And so if I'm just progressing, progressing, progressing without reconsidering who is this dog in front of me today and what do they need, I'm actually not doing a solid service for anyone, myself, the dog, the client. I have to be reconsidering those options every single time I'm seeing them, truthfully. So I wanted to, we've, we've brought up meet the dog's needs a lot. And I know to a lot of uh, my clients that translates to exercise, like pretty much only, or letting the dog do something that maybe they were bred to do, whether it's tug, chase, run, swim. Um, I have a Malinois puppy, 10, 10 months old. And part of I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, meeting his needs was giving him downtime, teaching him when it's time to chill, putting him, I know it's going to be controversial these days, but like putting him in a crate, doing, doing nothing with him, like having him in a room with me with toys and treats and stuff and still doing nothing sometimes, you know, like, and I feel like sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of like, and I, I want to stop by by saying if you have a dog with separation anxiety and it's like chewing holes through your wall, yeah, you don't want to just throw them in a crate and be like, get <laughs> over it, right? Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying if you got a dog, like puppy, whatever, or a dog that isn't showing those signs, I feel like I don't know what I'd be doing if I didn't do those stuff, that stuff with him. And yes, he does bite work. And yes, he has a lot of exercise. And yes, I have a fenced in yard. But do you do you see sometimes people maybe shying too far away from like teaching a dog obedience or doing some type of training or having boundaries like I, I know boundaries can sometimes become a dirty word or or even like structure but sometimes you know depending on the camp like structure can sound like this crazy military thing like you must obey in my house and boom 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 but to some dogs structure is predictability and is like yes. knowing yes. knowing what to do at a certain time because again like 
the one thing that Malinois did, and luckily my Labrador did, so I was kind of ready for this, is like, if I just do nothing and don't give him any heads up, he'll stare at me in the living room at like 11 o'clock at night and just be like, what are we doing, bro? Like, what are we doing? Like, what do you want me to do? You want me to jump out the window? Like, do you want me to like go bite on this thing? Like, you know what I mean? So like, I'm like, I'm gonna say another bad word. Like I taught him the word no. Like I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't hit him. I didn't do anything crazy, but I just taught him like this word that meant like, no, we're not, we're not playing right now. It's, it's, it's done. And if not, you know, he'd be like, and I wanna talk to you about the aside rambling, but your relaxation stuff and things like that. Um, because again, I feel like if I just were to shape it or were to just like keep offering treats for relaxation, this dude would be doing circles. Be like, am I, do am I relaxing hard enough? You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so whatever you got from that little ramble, you know, that's just, I want to just, you know, because we, we do, I made that mistake with my lab is like, I turn him into an athlete. Yes. You know, it was just like hike and bike and swim and run. And then I'd sit and he'd be up in my room at nine o'clock at night and be like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I never taught him that off switch. I was, yeah. I was just going to say before Dr. Paco says anything, I just wanted to say what you're referring to basically in simple terms is <laughs> teaching a dog an off switch. And, and it's funny you bring that up because like with Quest, my Australian Kelpie puppy, I mean, it was the same thing. She was like the energizer bunny. She will just go and go and go. And, and yeah, she needs to understand, like I always say, structured nap time, or yeah. we need structured time here where you just need to learn I'm working and it's time for you to do whatever it is, whether it's you can sit on the dog bed next to my desk while I'm working, or maybe it's time to put you in the crate for a nap. So teaching a dog that off switch and, and also, I like what you brought up, the predictability aspect, too. I think that's huge because predictability, Kim Brophy said this uh, when I first met her a couple of years ago. She said predictability reduces anxiety, you know, reduces like that stress in many, in many respects because it's something that's predictable to the animal now. So it absolutely does. I mean, anxiety, by definition, is an apprehensive anticipation of threat. It's a worry about the unknown which is why predictability and choice and agency is directly therapeutic. With that being said, there are a lot of my patients, often my working breed, more protection line type dogs, that if I say, what would you like to do now? <laughs> they spiral. Like they're like, no, 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 no. That's not my I'm job. So my job is that. really to be told what to do. And I need yeah. to know what's you know, what's my job in this moment? And so I love being able to, with, with those dogs at any point, whether it's as a puppy, adolescent, adult, whatever, wherever we're sort of point is our, um, of intervention is utilizing the tools that we have available. And so whether that's context or social cues, if I'm at my laptop, I don't do any, that's not, that's not working time. I'm not playing with you while I'm typing. That's, that's just a context clue. In some cases, I, I love using tethers as a way to say, cool, once a day for 20 minutes, twice a day for 25 minutes, I'm going to tether you. I'm going to give you something to do, but it's not going to involve me. And that's just, you know, becomes a, a cue for that. The, the crate can be very much the same. And I think, you know, in, in many cases, the, the, the lean goes a little bit far in that we're saying, oh, are we using the crate to manage the dog? to a certain point that's okay right and i say that even you know understanding that if we look at a dog's basic needs 
and I'm going to kind of pull back from the breed examples here for just a second, then we look at sort of the normal daily rhythm of the domestic dog. It's got a crepuscular rhythm where there's an activity period in the morning, midday is low arousal, and then there's a later afternoon activity period. That's what's supposed to happen. There actually, again, there are, there are exceptions when we start to get into some of the working breeds that can work all day long. That's great. But the sort of the, the, the generic dog needs downtime physically and emotionally in order to be able to process just like we all do. And their rest cycle looks a bit different than ours does when we tend to think about daylight versus darkness. And we kind of have that activity period there. So I have a lot of my patients where we literally will say, cool, we get up in the morning, we do some stuff and, you know, go somewhere around nine, 10 or so, we kind of start to wind down. And the middle of the day might be that dog in a crate in another room. We're making sure that they've had food and water and exercise and, you know, and potty breaks and all of those things that they need. But doing something with that dog all day long isn't necessarily helpful. And we're not always doing a better job of going back to your question about meeting needs. We're not necessarily meeting their needs. We're keeping them busy and we're creating athletes and we're creating kind of um, adrenaline reinforcement dopamine junkies without the ability to actually be. And I say that because that's like my own like burden in life. I'm very much a doer. And so my own challenge is actually, how can I just be in the moment without doing, doing, doing? And I think so many of us, because of our own lifestyles, recreate that for our dogs. And the more activities we have, and we do barn hunt on Tuesdays, and we do agility twice a day on Thursdays, but then nose work, well, that's on Wednesday, but that's the relaxing one. So then on Friday, we go to a sniff spot, but for four hours, because if we get... <laughs> Jesus, like take a let's help the dog learn how to take a breath and actually do some of that. So I, I totally agree. And I never want to get in, in the into a point where I'm saying, okay, you are struggling because you have a learning history that looks like that. So therefore now medication is our answer. Sometimes it's an inroad. If we have created that physiologic arousal and the animal is struggling and we're going down the pathway of appropriate management and BMOD and the animal is inflexible in their responses or those emotional arousals, the, the, the big feelings are getting in the way of them learning something new. Sure, we can leverage medication in a lot of cases to help them, but the medication is not the treatment. And that's something that's really important for me that when I'm thinking about the three pronged approach of BMOD management and and medication, my brain, you know, just as you heard me talking on the, the enrichment podcast as well, first things first, what do I want my animal to learn? Either from an emotional standpoint or from a behavioral standpoint, what, what am I here to teach them? What would the appropriate behavior look like? What's my BMOD plan for helping provide that education for them? And in the meantime, or until we've onboarded those skills, I'm going to lean on management, not because management is the solution, but I'm going to keep the dog out of the rehearsal pathway. I'm going to make sure that they're safe. I'm going to make sure that we're meeting their needs. And if needed, I can go on to that third prong of medication or some sort of physiologic support. But if I'm considering medication without having first considered the learning goals for that animal or how I'm going to balance that out with management, I'm, in my opinion, not doing my job as thoroughly as I need to be to make sure that I'm actually using medication where it best fits, 
Uh, and again, for me, that's sort of the difference between the psychiatrist model of the diagnosis yields a prescription. You know, I may say your dog has separation anxiety. Cool. What's our learning? What's our learning plan? And how are we managing? And do you need medication support? As opposed to saying separation anxiety gets medicated. And I think it's a really important distinction in the way that I approach the medication process, which may be so I know it's similar to some of my colleagues and a little bit different from others. That's just the reality of where we are. I want to jump to the least intrusive, minimally aversive topic a little since we started to touch on it. And it was just making me think as you're saying this. So, you know, what happens when we have a case where maybe medication is helping a little bit, or maybe it isn't one or the other and training and behavior modification and management is working to a degree. Where do we then decide, okay, when, and I guess how, or where, you know, where do we then decide to follow more of that least intrusive, minimally aversive um, philosophy more? Um, and maybe, I mean, if, if you want to give us examples or whatever, that's fine. But, but I'm just, I'm just thinking about this, as you're saying this, you know, there are cases where, yeah, medication helps to a degree. And I know I've had some difficult cases where the dog didn't do well on multiple, multiple medications. And then maybe some cases where we tried multiple with the vet behaviorist and maybe we found something that sort of worked and that's the best it was. And I'm, I'm curious to know where do we go from there if there's only so much we could do? And I know that there are some cases that there is only so much you can do and it is what it is. But I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on, on that a little bit. Yeah, I would say the, the short answer to this, if there is one, is that I really see my role as the GPS. And what I mean by that is that it's my job to say, here are our options. So if we continue doing what we're doing, so let's say we're working with that case, whatever the pattern is, maybe it's an aggression case, maybe it's a reactive dog, whatever, whatever label it is that we put on that, and we're struggling, right? We're just we're, we're struggling to manage the animal. They're not learning. They're not responding to meds. If we keep doing what we're already doing, we're probably not going to change the outcome, right? But I'll present that to the client because if we make other changes, we're going to have to deal with whatever, whatever happens next. And what I mean by that is, let's say, even if it's the patient where I'm saying, I'd really love to make a medication change, but I have to take them off the medication they're already on in order to move forward depending on the meds that we're thinking about. Your dog might actually get worse in the meantime. That's not ideal, right? So I'm gonna have that conversation. If we go forward with X, Y, and Z med changes, this is the probable or possible outcomes. I'm gonna say the same thing when it comes to uh, working my way through that Lima hierarchy of saying, okay, we've gone down the, the positive reinforcement pathway. Your dog knows based on our ability to evaluate your dog is a, has the ability to make appropriate choices in these circumstances and yet in emotional situations or under these other circumstances they're continuing to choose another option they're continuing to lunge they're continuing to bark they're continuing to bite or whatever the circumstances how do we navigate that conversation to say does that automatically justify sort of going forward in the hierarchy and i would argue that it it doesn't 
meaning I don't automatically say, yep, then we just jump to the next hierarchy. I'm going to have that conversation with the client and say, are we actually managing the dog as best we can? Have we implemented reinforcement as good as we think we have? And if we go forward, what do we think is going to happen based on that particular animal? And, and what I mean by that is we know that, again, the, the more coercive we are, and I'm trying to use the word coercive rather than simply just saying aversive or punishing. Because for me, again, it's, it's more of a measure of, of how much am I prioritizing my agenda over the needs or the desires of that animal. So the more coercive I am in requiring them to do something different, the more potential there is for some degree of fallout, whether that's a stress response, whether that is physical changes, hard to say based on the animal. But I tend to dig in a little bit more in my history, even if it's something like asking the client, hey, when you yelled at your dog, did it work? And actually coming back to some of the data, I yelled at him one time, he never did that thing again. And as best I can tell, I can't measure any additional fallout or negative outcomes of that. Okay, so maybe we've got a dog that in that particular situation had clear communication about what was or was not appropriate. The timing, the consistency, all of those criteria were met and we didn't automatically see generalized anxiety as a result. We didn't automatically see some of the other fallout that we know that we can see. So I'm gonna look at the, the learning history of the animal to try to guide that client to say, you know, um, if we go down one of these pathways that involves the use of aversives in some way, these are the outcomes. I have plenty of patients in my, in my patient population where, you know, someone's saying no, means that that dog will not spend time in the room with that person for 72 hours, right? Where we have such a profound response to a relatively benign correction that it would I would be hard pressed to say it's a good idea to add aversives to that dog unless we could somehow make that look different for that dog. But what I try not to do is scare people. I also try not to pretend that I know exactly what's going to happen for an individual dog. But I also have to acknowledge that whatever we do, we can't take back. It becomes a part of that animal's learning history, whether that's reinforcement or some form of an aversive. I can't take it back. And if we see a negative outcome from whatever our intervention is, that is now a part of that animal's learning history. And so I'm often talking about training methods almost the same way I do with medication. What's the probability that this is going to work and what's the likelihood or probability of side effects? And how do we stack that up against safety? How do we stack that up against our needs? Are our needs appropriate or are we sort of projecting our needs onto an animal who's really not in a position to be able to, to match that based on genetics, based on learning history, based on age, based on one of those other factors. All of those things guide the conversation. And, and I will say that in, in truth, the number of times that I escalate 
or move, and I, and I keep saying escalate, I don't know that that's necessarily the best use of that term, but thinking about moving through the, 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 the hierarchy steps down that highway, up the highway, over the highway, whatever direction we're talking about. <laughs> to grandmother's house we go. <laughs> grandmother's house we go. So, uh, you know, the, the number of times that I truly need to do that's actually pretty minimal. It really is. Now, that's my own bias, um, you know, and, and I, I think there is, when when have you when have you not to cut you off but i guess i know i heard uh, actually a podcast where you um had said you've had maybe in however many years you were practicing you had three or five cases something like that where you either had a discussion about using either aversives or coming to a different determination or that you guys actually did follow through i don't remember exactly but maybe you could explain those a little bit for for the dog trainers that are listening and and the dog owners a little bit and what maybe was discussed or where it went because Vinny and I could easily you know we could give our own examples our own personal examples of what you know we might choose as individual professionals but I'd be curious and and I mean we can if you want but uh, um, I would love to hear like where, like maybe some of those uh, descriptions or, or um, I don't know, I'd, I'd like to hear some of that a little bit. Yeah. So the first thing I'll mention there is that, and this is something that I teach with my veterinary students across the country as well as when we're going through the different tools and training methods that we have available to us. I really try to stress for them that I'm never, I'm never going to say that any one technique is always right or always wrong, that any one of the tools or methods that we can use in the right situation with someone who understands how to do it can can be leveraged, right? And, and so I'm not vilifying individual tools. I've never, you know, confiscated a prong collar. I've never, you know, refused to give someone the remote for their shot collar back in a consult. Um, like, I, I, that's just not my, my, my strategy. I may try to layer in other strategies so that those tools become less necessary for that client. But, you know, I'm, I'm again, as you were saying before, Vinny, I'm going to, I'm going to meet them where they are. Um, I, I would say that the times where I'm more likely to, to use some of those, those interventions, and I'm going to, I'm going to, the first two examples that I'll give are both involving the use of a shot caller, which depending on where people are listening, listening to, to the podcast, this might not even be legal in wherever you are you know, around the world. And so this may be your, an irrelevant point. The example, though, is something that we're using a, well, I'll just give you the examples and we'll sort it out from there. Uh, the one that comes to mind is here, so here in the Pacific Northwest, we've got a lot of really rural environments where in a split second, the dog, you know, we're not talking about in the Midwest where, okay, the dog runs west across North Dakota and you can see them for four miles. Right. We lose line of sight here in about 0.2 seconds, either because of trees or hills or mountains or ravines. And so it's not uncommon for clients to say, hey, I need to have a way to, to really proof that recall to the nth degree. We've got, you know, miles and miles of coastline where if the dog were to take off, yeah, you're going to see them 15 miles before they come to a dead end. Right. So in those cases, I may be considering more the, the use of a shock collar as more of a negative reinforcement tool. Now, I will say that's a consideration for me. Um, I've got some trainers in my area and across the country who I would reach out to if that were the case. My typical approach is I'm going to tell those clients, we've got an option, we can consider it, 
and let's make sure we've built the positive reinforcement foundation first to the degree that your dog understands what a recall actually means, meaning I'm not going to start with the negative reinforcement contingency of using the shot collar. That's my own bias. I'm not saying that that's wrong to do. I'm just saying that's not the way I'm going to approach it. And I find for most of my clients, the vast majority of them, if they put in the work on the reinforcement side, it's really rare for them to need to escalate to the negative reinforcement contingency. And if we do, the number of uses of that tool is extremely minimal. And it's at such a low intensity that I personally, in that context with those caveats, have not experienced significant fallout for using the tool in that way. And I know, I know that's gonna rate that's gonna ruffle some feathers for folks and saying, oh my God, I can't believe that a vet behaviorist is advocating for the use of a shot collar, blah, 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 blah. Got blah. you on the record. It's over. Too late. I know <laughs> the little red the little red button is still on, right? It's recording. We're gonna, we're gonna, edit, this, we're gonna edit this 10 second clip is the only thing we're gonna post. <laughs> It'll be like Dr. Brockle hey, says. It could be like, it, it could be like the, the little like clip, like the intro of the, the episode. Um, I will, but you know what? I just want to interrupt you and say I I I, I appreciate your honesty because I'm, I'm not even here to say what's right and wrong. I just, this is usually, and I think I could speak for most colleagues when I say, this is usually a topic where it's almost frowned upon or, or people are too scared to ask someone like yourself what our thoughts are, even if they're playful thoughts, even if we're, well, hmm, could this potentially be an option? Like I actually, I had recently um, written to a vet behaviorist I'm working with on a case and I was very honest about my thoughts about moving forward with the dog for its safety and what I felt was maybe an option to be appropriate. And I, I think that um, a lot of professional trainers that work with or team up with vet behaviors sometimes maybe feel that they can't have this conversation a little bit. And I think also, I want to just say, and I don't want to call out a community, but I'm just going to say, I think what you also said is really important for especially trainers, if we're going to categorize trainers of maybe the balanced community need to hear because I, I would say that a good amount of the time they're not necessarily referring the vet behaviorist for the reason of of feeling like this is they're going to be either judged or pushed aside and you're going to refer them to someone else that you trust or because you may not have the beliefs of what they feel is appropriate or safe or what their consideration of Lima is. So I think it's really like what you just said is really, really important because especially for maybe someone in that community to hear you say that is I think a big deal when maybe a lot of vet behaviorists wouldn't say that or, or whether openly or because they truly don't believe that to be the case. Sorry, I just yeah, wanted I to no, I think, it, I think it's great. And, and I would say probably six to eight years ago, I probably wouldn't have said it either. You know, like I, I'm, you know, I'm at the point in my career, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I, I know what the science tells me. I know that when I do my job well, the likelihood of me needing or even 
having the option to use a versus is actually pretty low, but I would say that I consider it for essentially every patient. Like there's never a point where an animal where they come in or I automatically say, no, anything is off the table. I'm gonna consider it because, I, I, how should I say this? I'm, I'm considering it because I have to lean into curiosity because this is a new learner yes. for me. I don't know how their brain works. I want to explore those options. And so I'm running down all of those pathways. What do I think is gonna happen based on the data that we have? And you know, based on what we know about the Lima hierarchy, what we think we know about it and how it affects individual animals. And I will say that in the vast majority of times, you know, other than a small handful, I choose to avoid certain applications of tools. And I'm generally pretty successful. Someone else with a different mindset, with a different set of tools, might choose to come at that in a different way. And, and I do think that there's, you know, there, there's also, I think, a really relevant detail in that the vast majority of the animals that I see um, by, by, by nature of, of selection bias or by who's referring in or what, whatever the situation is, a lot of the issues that we see are emotionally driven, not reinforcement driven. And when I see that as the issue where I have some of those indicators that we were talking about before, where I have an animal who has big feelings, I can see it in their body language, I see it in their physiology, I have to recognize as well that when that limbic system is more hyperactive, I don't actually have access, at least um, unfiltered access to the thinking part of their brain that I absolutely need to be online if I'm going to use something that has the potential to be aversive. If I'm adding in unpleasantness to a brain that's not processing sensory information appropriately, the likelihood of me creating additional negative consequences is so much greater. So my patient population rarely would be, in my opinion, eligible for, for the use or the even the consideration of those tools for those particular reasons. But that also takes me down another pathway where, you know, this is a case uh, a few years back where the primary issue was one that was more of a livestock chasing scenario. Not going to go into all of the details on it, but you know, in, in sort of looking at that particular animal, it wasn't emotionally driven. This was not a fear, anxiety, stress related problem. The dog had been provided with positive reinforcement appropriate management, you know, some negative reinforcement contingencies as well, and given the opportunity was still choosing the opportunity to, to charge livestock. And so we had a really honest consideration about is this a scenario where even recognizing that predatory behavior is regulated or influenced by a completely different part of the brain than the limbic system where we're typically thinking about fear, anxiety and stress issues. Do I have greater access or the greater consideration for utilizing whether it's a shock collar, whether it's an, uh, you know, a hot wire? What, again, we can talk specific tools or just the concept of something that will function as a positive punishment that gives that animal with immediacy, consistency, and efficacy that un um, that crystal clear communication that that behavior is not acceptable. And having the conversation with the client, have I had clients who have gone down that pathway? Yes. And if they choose that pathway, knowing the potential fallout based on their goals, I'll be honest, I don't do enough e-collar work. I've never done enough e-collar work that I'm going to feel completely confident guiding the client through that. I just don't do it. I understand the principles, but I don't have my hands on that tool often enough, but I have people I can refer them to. 
And so again, if I choose that, it's rare. I can count on one hand the actual number of times that I've done it over the course of 20 years. But I'll have the conversation with the client and let them decide what they're going to do. Because quite honestly, if they're going to go down that pathway anyway, I would rather have the benefit of me being able to say, hey, I want you to know what you're doing. I want you to be in the hands of someone who has better than average skills, who didn't just buy the device on the shelf and kind of glance at the manual and now they're applying something of no i'd rather put them in the hands of somebody who actually knows what they're doing um and ultimately that's their choice which brings me back around to that comment i made before about being the gps i'm the last person to tell a client what they should do it's not my job my job is to help them understand what they're seeing help to, to, to help them to understand the options that are there in front of them and what the likely outcomes are going to be. And then they choose what to do. If they want to go down a pathway that I don't support, they're welcome to do so. I won't be right there with them, but I'm also not judging them from where I am. And if they need to circle back around and come back and try you know, something that I can guide them to, I'm right there for them to support that process. I will not be everything for everyone. Uh, but I will help them to understand what the options are. So I'm trying to now think I'm of a, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'll, I'll out ramble you right now. I'm thinking of a, <laughs> I'm trying to think of where it would be beneficial. You guys already talked about e-collar. So I'm going to talk about controversial stuff. Cause you guys, you guys broke the ice. Wow. Beneficial to some, to sometimes proactively expose dogs two stresses ahead of time, like fire drills in school, right? Scary, loud, flashing lights, hurt your ears. You're like, what is this? Maybe confusing. Um, you could stay aversive, um, uncomfortable, but it was setting you up for something that might happen, right? So something that I recently got a lot of flack for is, is I do a lot of leash pressure work. Um, I teach dogs how to give in to leash pressure. Part of why I started teaching that to clients sometimes day one is because day one, they're yanking their dogs all over the place. So I was like, huh, I could put a little treat on the floor and gently nag this dog away from it. And is it technically scientifically negative reinforcement and maybe positive punishment? Like, yeah, maybe. But like this dog is getting yanked all over the place anyway. You know, when I got my when I got my puppy and I put his his collar on and a leash for weeks, like two weeks indoors, I was pulling on his collar and teaching him that it led to rewards and it led to engagement. It led to good stuff with me so that then the first time he saw a stranger walking a dog and he hit that end of the leash, he already saw that picture a hundred times in a positive way instead of with my previous dog where it was like, positive are just treat, 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 never hit the end of the leash. Cause why would you, we're doing great. And then one day you hit the end of the leash and it's a scary, stressful situation, dog off leash. Now there's this whole negativity. And then we could talk about the fallout that might've actually been worse because that first dog never knew what that was ever like. And yeah, maybe I could stay, I could have stayed in my house longer, but I mean, if you're listening to this and you own a dog and that dog never hit the end of the leash, I will pay you. Let me know. I will come and learn from you. Like, I don't know. I'll, I'll be honest. All my dogs, they still hit the end of their leash and I do a ton of training. It happens. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, again, 
you've you've said a lot of the dogs you're seeing have they're they're coming from a different place emotionally so and and they might also be way far past this this point but that being said you know are there times you know because we, we go ba going back and tying it back into this is the one thing i see that i don't like about the lanes is like positive punishment is just on the top and it seems like we're like i have to roll up a newspaper and like smash the dog on the head but like there are varying levels of, you know, like you could scream at your dog or you could like turn, like you could, like my dog starts going in the garbage. I could turn and just look and then they're like, okay, I'm done. I don't have to do anything, you know? Um, so yeah, what, what kind of, what thoughts come to your mind when you hear that? And like, do you ever skip or do you ever see, look, this dog is, this is going to happen anyway. Like, the dog has to get to the vet or the dog has to, you know, go through the shelter, the shelter hallway. Um, do you ever see a benefit to maybe, you know, we got to skip ahead um, to something? I, I do. And I, I think the, I love the fact that you brought up sort of a yield to pressure type training. I love pressure exercises, not because that's the way I want the animal to learn, but I want them to understand that. So when it happens, even something as simple as I, I tripped and I stepped on your leash and you yeah. hit the end of it. If you already have a pre-existing understanding, you've got sort of a framework around end of leash. If I move in the direction of that pressure, it leads to positive things. If I've already given you sort of the next step of that, I do find coming back to predictability and the loss of anxiety and those sorts of things. I do find that for the, the majority of the dogs that I work with, especially if they're on the sort of naive side of things, the puppy, the adolescent, they're just learning about those things. I do, I do see the value in preparing them for those experiences. And I'm probably biased in, in, in two, two, two ways. One, I'm in the veterinary community. There are times where we need to do things. <laughs> And I'm not saying we just bypass. <laughs> I'm gonna have to poke you with a needle and you're not ready for it. You didn't opt in yet. We're doing cooperative care, all good, all good. And right now I need to save your life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm gonna have to do things. So again, and I'm not trying to go over the slippery slope of then saying that justifies me manhandling my patients. No, 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 I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there are going to be times where the animal would not give consent if we ask them and yet the thing does need to happen. And so what can I do with a puppy, with an adolescent, with the individual prior to that stressful situation to teach them what to do? And whether that's a yield to pressure or whether it's intentional exposure to, you know, more significantly triggering situations, I want them to understand that. So partly I'm biased by my experience in the veterinary profession, knowing that some of those situations are going to come up in the delivery of veterinary care. Um, I would also say that I am incredibly biased by having had the opportunity uh, to, to learn. When I see the name RK Anderson, do either of you know who that is? No, okay. you got me. <laughs> no, it, it, it was an, I don't, I don't mean to throw you on the spot. That's not a negative. Um, RK Anderson was one of the co-inventors of the gentle leader one of the first head callers that was developed back in the day, back when I was literally taking my dog through puppy class as a vet student, you know, back in the day. So we're going back 30 years now, almost at this point in time. Uh, he has since passed on, but he was one of the kind of the grandfathers of veterinary behavior and was one of the developers of that particular tool. And so I learned from someone who was developing that tool, how to use and apply really, really subtle pressure 
as a directional cue and how to use that not as a positive punishment, but as a stimulus that provided information and the release of that discomfort or pressure or whatever label we put on it could be a meaningful tool for the animal. And the number of dogs that I've been able to work with, with feather light pressure, with clarity of communication in one or two sessions to, you know, absolutely leap forward in terms of their understanding of what's expected of them. That's something that is a part of my toolbox from my baby behaviorist days. And as we've switched over to front clip harnesses and, you know, force free and fear free. And again, I'm not trying to say any of those things are bad. But I do think that we've lost some of the tools that are accessible to us. And I'm not saying that every dog should be in a head collar because someone's going to hear that in what I just said. I'm not saying that every dog should be in a head collar. I'm not saying that we should be training through force or coercion. And if there's a, a need or an opportunity to be able to proactively provide those skills and to give them those physical prompts in a meaningful way, in a low stress way that better prepares that animal for navigating whatever stressors are going to come next in their life, count me in. Like, wh why not? And I am fully aware when I'm doing that, the moment I prioritize my need and I'm putting pressure on, I've ratcheted up on that coercion scale. And so I have to be aware that if I have an animal where I put gentle pressure on in some way, shape or form, whether it's head collar, whether it's physical pressure, and they tense up against me, either them, either I've, I've moved too fast, that's not the right tool for that animal, or I need to try something else. So I'm not saying that we just push through and we violate the needs or the emotional experience of the animal. What I'm saying is that we in my experience, have the ability to, to approximate that as we do so many other things and teach them how to actually navigate the world around them, which is a really long answer to saying, should we proactively teach fire drills before the fire? <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, we should. All right. So e-collars and pressure. That's that's the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. You said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, you know, it's really, it, it's really nice to hear you say that because yeah, it, you know, things get heated and some of these tools could obviously be used terribly. And there is a varying level to, you know, there's a difference between a directional pressure and like slamming the dog with a flat collar, right? It doesn't even have to be a prong. Um, and yeah, it's my experience when you do do those fire drills, going back to predictability, and then they feel that pressure. And like, instead of being like, oh my God, this is this weird thing that happens every time I'm stressed or every time a dog is passing by, they're like, oh yeah, this is that thing that means if I go back over to the side, it's going to get loose again. And then I'm going to get some treats. And it kind of creates more information for the dog. I totally so, agree, Vinny. And what, one little caveat that I want to put on that too, because again, I know that when we as a profession and all the different lenses that are on this profession, whether it's veterinary, veterinary behavior, trainer, be, all of the different lenses, you see and you hear something different based on your own learning history. Uh, and, and that's just the way it is. Like that, I, I can't argue yeah. with that. But what I want to be sure is that, that someone I suspect is going to hear that and say, oh, well, if Dr. Pockle says that's okay, <laughs> then I can sort of skip those beginning runs because it, it worked for the last three dogs yeah, to no. use some of those aversives or those coercives. So I'm, I'm just going to skip the foundation and I'm going to go to, to that. That's not at all what I'm saying. And that's something that I try to stress to my students is that the learner in front of you 
deserves the opportunity to have their needs met, to be physically healthy, to have the benefit of positive reinforcement and the benefit of proactive education of what we're asking of them. And that learner in front of you deserves that opportunity. Anybody in my experience, and I don't wanna call anybody out on this, but anybody who says, oh, you wanna train, here's your prong. You wanna train, here's your shock collar. You want to train, here's, here is the aversive that we're going to use for that. The learner in front of you deserves better. The learner in front of you deserves better. Very true, very true. Yeah, especially with, you know, some of the things, you know, even a head halter, they can, they can mask certain things. So it could, it could help you feel like you are further than, than you should be. Um, it could bring you, you closer to certain triggers or feel like you've made it a certain point. But you always got to also remember there's, there's emotions that you, you have to address. It's not just like, oh, my dog isn't pulling anymore. You know, it's like, okay, but how is he feeling about not pulling anymore? So, you know, I, at least when I'm using tools like that, I am constantly still like, how do you, how do you, I'm not actually asking, but I'm in my head. I'm like, how are you feeling about this? You know, and when, what am I observing? Um, yes. You know. I, I love that. You know, and, and again, we, we, we can ask the question, right? The animal can't respond in words, but you know, body, are yeah. you still able to give me, you know, lateral flexion yeah, of your yeah, spine yeah. because you're soft and wiggly? Are you able to notice what's happening around you and reorient? Not because a look at me is the solution to the world's problems, but can you actually take your eyes off of what's happening? Are you comfortable enough that you could actually check in with me? Like we, we can ask those questions rather than, as you're saying, just measure in terms of, did you bark? Did you lunge? Did you pull on the leash? How, how are you feeling? They're giving us that information once we know how to read them. Uh, and, and I agree that, you know, all of these, this conversation about maybe some of those scenarios where some of these other tools or, or, or strategies can be useful, none of that negates everything else that you just said, right? It's, it's ever, all of that is the foundation. Uh, and it gets a little sticky when we get into some of these other tools. And uh, I think it's an important part of our conversations. I love yeah, it. I think I, I agree. I think it is something that's super important just to have a uh, conversation about and, you know, be thoughtful and objective. And I like what you said before, because Vinny and I often talk about, uh, we always, we're always talking about like the what ifs or like throwing out those scenarios of what if you did this, what would it be like, you know, and, and having those like playful thoughts, I guess the, the way to describe it, I don't know, but I like how you said that you even think like that. I think that's important. I think that's just so important to have that objective view and just be able to look at things from that that lens. Um, so we appreciate- Trying to, try to lean, in, lean into curiosity. You know, what yeah. if? Yeah, you know, not saying I'm going to try it out just to see, but <laughs> what, what do oh, I think is going to happen now? No, let's right. say it carried away. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, well, thank you. I appreciate you coming on. Um, where can uh, tell tell everyone where can they find you and social media, your website, all that stuff. All the things. Yeah, probably the easiest place to track me down is the website drpockle.com. 
uh, D-R-P-A-C-H-E-L.com. Uh, essentially everything else that I'm connected to, whether that be through Animal Behavior Clinic or Instinct or the media page where podcasts like this one get linked, all of that is sort of a hub from that particular location. It's got access to my social media as well. Feel free to track me down wherever you find me. My only request is that if you're connecting with me on social media, or maybe you sent me a connection request and you're waiting for me to approve it, and I don't exactly know who you are, please send an introduction. <laughs> Say, hey, this is so-and-so, and I heard you on such a... I'm happy to request or happy to, to accept that. I'm happy to connect with you wherever you are and whatever the connection happens to be um, and whatever your background is. You know, if you if you vibe on anything that we've been chatting about here, I'm open to that collaboration, that conversation. Absolutely. Just do me a solid and let me know who you are and why you want to connect. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not into just collecting friends for the numbers. I really appreciate the connections. So that's where I'm at. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thanks, so welcome. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.